Um, okay, hi. Uh, today we're continuing our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I'll be reading from chapter 13. So as you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word and as a sign of his authority over us. So reading from 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reason like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Thanks. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ community. If I haven't met you, my name is Pat. I currently serve as one of five elders here at the church And it is a pleasure, as always, to speak to you from God's Word. Uh, This morning, uh, which has been littered all over uh, what we've been talking about thus far, I get to speak to you about the topic of love. What an easy topic, right? Just for fun, I looked up the definition of love from Webster, which I'm sure is spot on. It says this, it's an intense feeling of deep affection. An intense feeling of deep affection. Okay, so I ask, what if I have a moderately intense feeling of affection, but not deep affection? Is that love? How about an intense desire to have a feeling of deep affection in order for me to be truly loving? Do I have to have intense feelings and deep affections? I honestly have no idea what that definition means. In our current culture, I think we hear pithy one-liners, things like love is love, which obviously forgets what our third grade teachers told us about not using the word in its own definition. What about romantic relationships? When I was dating my wife, I was committed to the idea that I was not going to tell her that I loved her until I had a ring on her finger. And why did I think that? Well, because I knew that that word love communicated something about my intentions, But I've known other people who have professed their love for one another for the first time while sitting on a couch gazing lovingly into each other's eyes, clearly more romantic than my younger principled self. Think about this. Right now in this room, if you look to your left and you look to your right, most of you are sitting next to people that you know. And I would say, if that is the case, that you could probably say of one another, who you are next to, that I love you as a brother or a sister in Christ. 
But what if, and I won't do this, what if I said stand up and move about the room and sit next to someone that you've never met before? Would you still be able to express that kind of love for that person? Or would that love be different? The Gospel of John chapter 15 verse 13 says this, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I'll get a, give a bit of a big picture spoiler right now. Jesus is the clearest example of love that the world has ever known and will ever know. His love for us in the giving of his life is the quintessential lens through which we are to view and understand love. Let's be clear, however. No matter how many weddings you have been to where these verses have been the source of the main message, this is not a wedding sermon. We love to use it at weddings because it feels nice to talk about love, and this is the most talking about love that we see in one chapter. These verses are so popular and well-known, even outside of the church. But we cannot read chapter 13 without acknowledging what Paul has been saying to the Corinthian church for 12 chapters before. The Corinthian church was a very self-focused, competitive successful and popular church filled with people who were trying to prove who was the most spiritual. Chapter 13 is an absolute face-slapping rebuke of their sin. And so you can see how using this at a wedding, though please understand, if you use these verses at your wedding, I'm sure they were lovely and preached well, but you can, you can see how utilizing these verses at a wedding after learning what they are about could seem out of place. To our church this morning, as I believe Paul intended for the church at Corinth, these 13 verses are at least an instructive warning to us. But I think for all of us in some way, this chapter is likewise correction intended to root out sin. Let me pray again for us as we continue. Father, I do pray that you would root out sin in our lives. We come here to worship you because you are worthy, as has been spoken this morning. And I pray as we look at your word that Jesus would be beautiful to us. You are love, and you have poured that love out into us. Convict us of our sin. God, help us to see you more clearly, to love one another well. In Jesus' name. I think about what's happening in this church right now. So many of you give your time to serve this church Right to set up chairs, uh, caring for children, playing music, making coffee. The coffee part is one of my favorite. Others of you give the gift of hospitality by bringing meals and gifts to people who are in need. Hospitality Sundays find many of you opening up your homes to welcome people in and enjoy time of fellowship together. Twenty of you this morning were at the liturgy team meeting this morning learning about how to serve the church on Sunday mornings by leading our church through the elements of a worship service. Many of you give generously with your finances to provide for the needs of this church. There's so many things that are happening here that give me reasons I considered them to pause and be thankful. But according to Paul, do you know what would make all of these things meaningless? The absence of love. Remember the interaction from Matthew 22. A lawyer, a Pharisee, had come up to Jesus and they had this well-known exchange. He said in verse 36, Teacher, 
What is the great commandment in the law? We read this this morning. He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you look at our website, under mission and values, our mission statement reads, love God, love people, starting here in Champaign-Urbana. Sorry, make disciples starting here in Champaign-Urbana. Craig mentioned at a members meeting back in January that we really believe that loving God and loving people should be at the heart of every mission statement of every church around the world. Because we can have the best services, we can have the best programs, the best teaching, the best music, the most gifted people, but according to Paul, all of that would be utterly wasted if we have not love. And so again, I ask us to consider Consider our lives and our church. Are we marked by love? A love for God and a love for others. If we look back to chapter 12 that Nate preached last week, after Paul talks all about the unique giftings of each individual member of the church and how they all work together, we read this in verse 31. He says, And I will show you a still more excellent way. He teaches that the body is made up of many members, each member uniquely gifted to serve one another and to function as a healthy body. Not everyone shares the same gifts, and there are some gifts that are miraculous in nature, only bestowed on people by the specific and miraculous power of God. He even says earnestly desire those gifts. But he says, and I will show you still a more excellent way. And what is that more excellent way? What is more excellent than pursuing the highest, most seemingly spiritual gift from God? The more excellent way is the way of love. In our chapter this morning, Paul naturally separates the text very easily into three sections. First, in verses 1 through 3, he talks about the primacy of love. Next, in verses 4 through 7, he talks about the character of love, or what is it like? And finally, in verses 8 through 12, he talks about the eternality of love. So let's begin again briefly looking at verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read them here. He says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See, Paul has been addressing the misperceived notion of true spirituality that the Corinthian church presumed. In chapter 12, he specifically mentions what some writers refer to as grace gifts. One being the gift by God to speak in different languages the speaker had not spoken before. It stands to reason that some in the church then were boasting in their ability to speak in the tongues of men. And Paul is having none of that. None of that boasting, that is. See, Paul had the gift of tongues. And more reason to boast than any of them. Imagine if in this church there were many home builders. One person says, I built that beautiful home there. And another says, well, look at that home I built. It far surpasses yours. It's as if Paul is saying, I don't care if you built the White House and the Taj Mahal, right? It's hyperbole. 
He says, I speak in tongues, right, Paul says, but even if I were to speak in the tongues of angels, and I don't know that there actually are specific tongues of angels, right? But he says, even if I did that, and I have not not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In case that's not clear, he's not talking about a well-appointed triangle ting. He's speaking of a misplaced cowbell. The word gong there actually means more of a random piece of metal. The gongs that would be played in pagan temples at the beginning of a worship service to false gods. So you see how these need a little context to work into weddings. Move on to verse 2. Prophetic powers. Arguably at this time in history, no one had the gift of prophecy like Paul. God had gifted him with knowledge and understanding of the mysteries of God in miraculous ways. And the Corinthian church very clearly thought highly of their own knowledge of what they perceived to be true spirituality. They didn't have libraries at the time, but I could imagine it would be like walking into a church office of a pastor of that church and seeing hundreds of books, each one a reminder of how smart the teachers were in that church. Then there's faith. Jesus himself said in Matthew 17 that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is really a really, really small seed, we could say to the mountain, move, and it would. Paul says he could have all the knowledge, he could have all the faith, the most spiritual of tongues, he could exercise all of these things excellently. And yet he says, if he does not have love, then what? Then he still has some growing to do? If he doesn't have love, then those gifts won't be very powerful. That's not what he says. He says that if he has all of those things and yet does not have love, then he is nothing. Paul keeps building on that hyperbolic argument. He says in verse 3, even if you give all that you have away, not just money or things, even if you give yourself up to be burned as a martyr, Even if you have that kind of spiritual devotion, but you do not possess love, it will gain you nothing. Do you ever have a tendency to judge your own spiritual maturity by the fruits that come from your labor? I used to lead music here at Christ Community and before that in campus ministries. And if you've ever been a music leader at a church, I realize many of you haven't, You know that feeling when you get done and the music was executed really well and people are clearly engaged in singing and maybe there's an extra dozen hands or so raised and some spirit-led swaying that you can see. And I'd personally get done with a set like that and I'd have this like warm, fuzzy feeling about me. I would naturally assume that the Spirit of God was moving in a special way and I would leave feeling very, very good about myself that I had done a really good job. Paul talks about the gift of prophecy. And that's not always in a sort of future truth-telling way. Prophetic gifts can be used when we teach from the Word of God. How many times have I finished preaching and waited for the praise of men to validate my existence, to prove that I had done good work? Paul says to me and to us, you can use your gifts, you can even use them excellently, God might even use those gifts to build people up, but for the person exercising those gifts, if they are void of love, then they are of no value to you. He says in verse 1, you are a noisy gong 
and a clanging cymbal. You are nothing. You gain nothing. So you can be a Christian and not have a lot of these gifts that Paul speaks of, but you cannot call yourself a Christian, a follower of Christ, and not possess love. It is not possible because love is the true mark of Christianity. In John's Gospel, chapter 13, Jesus says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. But this, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. So what does he say? By your worship music, they'll know. By your teaching, they'll know. By your exercising of gifts, by your success, by your perfect theology, by your great programs. It's not what he says. Far more simple. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the first point from our passage. In everything that we do, love is primary. Okay, so what does love look like? What is the character of love? That's what we're going to see next. Look again at verses 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, these verses are wonderful, but they aren't meant to be adorned with flowers. As I mentioned earlier, it's actually a not-so-subtle rebuke, as Paul has already used some of these words and called them out specifically in previous chapters. He's called them boastful. He's called them arrogant. He's called them selfish. He's called them idolaters. In these verses, we see both what love is, and we also see what love is not. Notice we're not giving a clear definition. Paul is simply describing what we can expect to see when love is present among us. So let's look at a few words. Love is patient. It's not irritable. It bears all things. Here's another way to think about this. Other Bible translations say it this way. Love suffers long. It is long-suffering in difficult situations with difficult people. The reality of being a human, right, which you all are, even Jesus, is that we are all weak and needy. I work as a Christian counselor in town, and there's one phrase that I, I often, 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 often hear from people, and it's this, I don't want to be a burden to other people. I'm going to say this here for everyone, and if you ever come to see me in my office, we can just skip past this session. The reality of being a human, and you cannot avoid this, the reality of being a human is that you are going to be a burden on other people. We are all, in this fallen world, incredibly weak and very needy, even if sometimes we'd like to pretend that we're not. When weak people, people with needs, people different from you come into your life, are you long-suffering with them? Or instead, do you become irritable, impatient, standoffish, and rude? Are you patient with people, waiting on them, waiting on God? Or do you demand change from them and criticize them in your heart? If only they were this way. 
If you do, you have a love problem. Love is long-suffering. It bears with one another in weakness. It bears with one another in our differences, in our differences of preferences. What else is it? Second thing, love is selfless. These verses also say that love does not envy or boast or insist on its own way. Love is humble. It denies itself for the sake, or rather it denies self for the sake of the other. I don't preach these verses at weddings, but I almost always take the soon-to-be-wed couple to Philippians chapter 2, which I thought important to read this morning. Listen to the instruction that Paul gives to us. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Love denies self, and it exudes humility. Being selfless, though, is more than just denying your own needs or rights. It also gives your very self to others. True love rejoices with truth and hopes for people. I say this to people in my office a lot. Borrow some of my hope. One consistent prayer that I often pray throughout my weeks from God a lot is that he would increase my hope in Christ and the resurrection so that when others are feeling hopeless that I can point them again and again to the hope that is found in Jesus. But before we continue, I'll point the finger at myself here. Let's all pause and recognize that though you may have those difficult people on your mind, it's probably worth noting that you might be the difficult person. In your lack of love, others in this church may presently be bearing with you being patient with you. I wonder if you're familiar with the reflective verses in Psalm 139. Verses 23 and 24 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I would invite you to do that. As I looked at these verses this week, I did a simple exercise. I did this regarding verses 4 through 7. Is Pat patient and kind? Does Pat envy or boast? Does Pat display arrogance? Has he been rude to someone else this week? Has Pat insisted on his own ways? Has he been irritable or resentful? I think you see the point. Here's the honest truth. The results didn't come back very favorably. I've failed in every single one of these areas this week. Let me give you an example. I forgot to tell Cody, my son, about this before I came up here. It's spring break, and the other day, me and Cody and Cameron, um, my two oldest boys, stayed up very late watching a movie, because that's what cool dads do. And we got done and thought, Mom would really like this movie. So the next day, we're all in the living room, and Cody wanted to explain the movie to Pam. So he started, and 30 seconds in... He's 12. I was already very impatient. So what did I do? Well, I said, Cody, 
Set a timer for 30 seconds, and I will explain the whole movie to mom in under 30 seconds. I think I actually did it. In that moment, it all seemed like fun, but afterwards, especially after reading this passage, I realized, man, I have a love problem. I wasn't patient. I wasn't kind. I expected a 12-year-old with no public speaking skills and 30 years less vocabulary to speak as an eloquent orator. I was boastful. I was arrogant. See, love in that circumstance would have looked very, very different. And that may seem like a trite example, but my heart is deceitful. And it's those small examples that I often just let slide, thinking that I have more important things to consider. Church, Christ community, I think that if you're honest, if you went through this list, you would find that you have a love problem. And why does this matter? What Paul is getting at in this section is that the people in the church at Corinth were judging their spiritual maturity and their standing before God, their worth in the congregation based on the gifts that they possessed and how those gifts were received and seen by others in their community. The result of that focus was the danger of all of their work being in vain. And that brings us to our final point. Love, unlike a gift, is eternal. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. See, the reason it's so important to focus on love rather than gifts is because, according to Paul, love will never end, but our gifts will. Let's apply this briefly. I'll share another story from my own life where I see the potential danger. I've been in ministry, meaning I've worked for campus ministries of the church for about 20 years at this point. 15 years ago, I was asked, I remember this so clearly, 15 years ago I was asked to teach a seminar on the topic of discipleship at a crew Christmas conference in Indianapolis. I was 26 years old and the conference had about 2,600 people at the time. There were probably a dozen seminars that day, but mine was, I was told, the most well attended. So much so that they offered it again later in the day because too many students wanted to come and they couldn't get in. Now the next day, I heard from the conference director that the feedback from the seminar was overwhelmingly positive. And I remember very clearly being told, hey, in the future, you can do whatever seminar you want. I felt awesome. See, when I did ministry, when I exercised my gifts on that day, people were genuinely helped and cared for. I was well thought of. And the accolades poured in for days. Here's the danger. Somehow believing that the fruit of ministry is evidence that the Lord was with me. Let me explain. You see, I know myself. I know my own sin more than anyone else here. No one knew what was going on in my heart. See, I had a lot of knowledge. And Paul already told me before that knowledge puffs up. Not good. You see, I know, right, in that moment, there was a lot of me that was doing it for the praise and the accolade. Here's something else I know. I know that I have the ability in my gifts to perform like that regardless if I'm doing it out of love for God and others. 
even when writing this sermon, which may or may not be particularly good, I don't know, don't tell me afterwards, I had to wrestle with the idea, am I writing this to be well thought of? Am I exercising a gift of speaking to validate my existence and prove my worth? Or am I doing it in order to love each individual person in this church, in this room, and to be used by God for your good? Here's what I fear, church, and what I pray against for us. That as we grow, and if you haven't noticed, there's been some growth here recently. As we see more happen around CU, as we use the many gifts that this church possesses collectively and our ministry grows, my fear is that we will be tempted to hang our hat on the success of this church and that we will be distracted from growing in love for God and for one another. That we might be tempted to compromise real heart change, being conformed one with another to the image of Jesus and instead settle for a resume of performance. Here's why I fear that. Matthew chapter 7 says this, Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, we cannot evaluate spiritual maturity in our lives or the life of our church by what we do or by the gifts that we exercise, be them miraculous or not, even if the external fruit or acknowledgement of our labor is known, because all of those things will eventually pass away. Rather, we must look at the heart. Do we love one another as God in Christ has loved us? Think about people in this room. Are there those with whom you have division in your own heart toward and are merely tolerating them? Are you withholding love from someone because you are harboring bitterness? Are there those right here in our congregation that you have already determined you don't want to have anything to do with, and so you're keeping your distance? Do you gossip about others, even slightly, even in those kind of southern, oh, bless their heart sort of way? Listen to what Jonathan Edwards wrote regarding this passage. A spiritual gift of miracles or speaking does not change a person's inherent nature. A gift ability does not require a change of heart as love or holiness does. Gifts are like precious jewels with which a body may be adorned, but which do not alter the body's form. But the grace of God and its fruit turns, as it were, the very soul into a precious jewel. This, Christ community, is what Paul means when he says, I will show you still a more excellent way. Romans 5 says that the love of God has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Corinthian church was obsessed with comparing themselves one with another. I have this gift. I have that gift. I speak in that tongue or I have that prophetic word or knowledge. We're going to see next week that these gifts are to be desired, but we must remember that they will not prove our devotion to God. They cannot save us and they will eventually pass away. We must then live in a more excellent way. We must then live lives by the grace of God that treasures a love for God and a love for his people. In verses 11 to 12, Paul gives some instruction on how we are to reason and to live. And it's a common you know, message that has almost become a modern-day proverb in the secular world. For the, the first time that I heard it, actually, it was well before I was a Christian. It was on the show uh, um, Home Improvement, if you remember that, spoken by the all-wise, faceless Mr. Wilson. 
But it was actually Paul who said it, just to be clear. He said this, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul's not saying that desiring or practicing spiritual gifts is childish. More on that in chapter 14 next week. The best way to understand the child-adult analogy here is in the phrase, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. He said at the end of verse 10 that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Meaning, right now, we, you and I, we only see our true reality imperfectly. That imperfect understanding is what leads us to spend so much of our time seeking our own good, the fruit of our own labor and gifts. But when Christ returns... We will see perfectly. We will know then clearly what Paul is teaching us now, that it is love and not our works that will last into eternity. Love is the essence of Christianity. And while the exercising of gifts will eventually be unneeded, as there will be no need to build up the church, there is limitless, eternal capacity for the pursuit of love. Why? Because we will see Christ face to face. And so growth into maturity is putting off the childish perspective that was rampant in the Corinthian church. The perspective that seeks to be known and accepted by the things that we do. And instead, living your life in light of eternity. Living it for that that which will never end. Living a life marked with love. Finally, I want to point us clearly to Jesus. Take that exercise I mentioned earlier by inserting Jesus' name into 4 through 7. Is Jesus patient? Yes, always. Is Jesus kind? 100% of the time. Is Jesus long-suffering? Yes. Is he self-denying? To the point of death, yes. Is he all these things to people like you and me who are weak and needy? Yes. And in so doing that, is he ever bitter or resentful toward us? Never. Not once. One major reason that I believe we all have love problems toward others is that we have an an internal love problem. See, we long to be loved and valued and accepted in ways that will never be perfect until the perfect comes until Christ returns. It is because of this that we need to fight to believe what is true. Here's a little nugget from the end of verse 12 that is so profoundly helpful to me personally. It says this, Now I know in part, then I shall know fully. Listen to this. Even as I have been fully known. Even as I have been fully known. See, if you are a follower of Christ, then rest assured, you are fully known, And you are fully loved. Every sin, every failure, every weakness, past, present, and future, you are fully known, you are fully accepted, and you are fully loved. In the book of 1 John, we read this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. We love because he first loved us. That right there is not only the motivation, 
but it is the power to love. We love because God first loved us. He doesn't love you because you're good. He doesn't love you because of your gifts. He doesn't love you because of your moral character. He doesn't love you because of what you do for him. He doesn't love you because you found the right religion or go to the right church. He doesn't love you because you're a good mom. He doesn't love you because you're a good leader. He doesn't love you because you're not socially awkward. He doesn't love you because you read your Bible regularly or spend hours in prayer every day. He doesn't love you because you haven't looked at porn in three weeks. He doesn't love you because you handle your money well. He doesn't love you because you love your neighbors well. He doesn't love you whatever. He's not compelled to love you for any of those reasons. He loves you because he loves you. He knows you fully and he chose to send his son Jesus to die for you because of his grace. And then he poured out his love into you by his Holy Spirit. Do you want to love well? I do. Fix your eyes on Christ. Wherever you are not loving well, no matter what your justification may be, it is because you are not allowing the unmerited love of God offered to you by grace to penetrate your heart. Here's the good news. Jesus is very patient and he's very kind and he endures all things and he hopes all things. Friends, church, it is only the love of God, the love of God that accepts us, blemishes and all. It is only that love that will cause our eyes to be opened to our deep self-centered ways. And it is only that love that will compel us to denounce our selfishness and love our brothers and sisters exactly where they are. Christ community, because of the freedom given to you in Christ, choose to love radically. Choose to love freely. Let me pray for us. Father, there are hundreds of lines of application to the call to love. I believe that by your spirit that you are stirring even within us now a recognition of specific people and specific situations that we have chose not to demonstrate love. And God, I pray that you would convict us, that we would repent, and that we would choose to love people, denying ourselves and giving ourselves fully. We are so thankful, I am thankful, that you have poured out your love into us. God, that you did not even spare your own son, but graciously gave him to us freely. Thankful for this church. Thankful for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.